Debates about caste-based reservations in India consistently make front-page news. Dominant political parties and the judiciary perform vital roles in ensuring the implementation of this measure to address historic and enduring injustices, social exclusion, and deep-seated inequality in favor of Savarna castes in India. How well has the judiciary fared in ensuring that reservations are implemented? This week on Research Radio, Samina Dalwai and Abhinav Tyagi join us to discuss their work on the Indian judiciary and reservations. Dr. Dalwai is with the Jindal Global Law School in Sonipat. She writes in Marathi and English on caste, gender, sexuality, cultural nationalism and law. Abhinav teaches political science at Scottish International School in Shamli. He also hosts a podcast called The Government. We'll be discussing their EPW article titled Impact of Uttarakhand's Reservation Judgment on Women. And I've shared a link to it in the show notes. Also, this episode was recorded in July 2020, and therefore, we don't comment on the recent developments on reservations. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Samina and Abhinav. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Abhishek. So your article opens quite powerfully with the sentence, quote, Reservation is not a policy enacted by a benevolent state or a standard developed by a progressive judiciary, end quote. Before we get into understanding reservations as we know it today, could we understand some of the previous forms of reservation that the subcontinent has had? In fact, I think the earliest example you could fi- you would find in recorded history would go back to the times when the, the majority of jobs were actually created by the monarch, by the by princely estates, or by these various forces that often didn't have a centralized form. So you would have some kingdoms overtly recognize that um, there are castes other than Kshatriyas and Brahmins that need affirmative action in this very early sort of form where there might not have been, say, for example, a policy stated in terms of a percentage, but there still was some idea of having some jobs reserved. Obviously, this is a primitive form of reservation. This isn't as detailed in terms of its philosophy of applying this policy across uh, sub-castes, up, up, across all the um, castes. It didn't have a very advanced terminology, uh, for example, to distinguish between the various stratified sections of societies that they were uh, governing. But moving on from there, you also see British examples where the British Raj recognized that uh, this sort of disparity exists and that it must be addressed in some form. So, for example, in 1880, the, uh, the British state actually set up scholarships and special schools where to discriminate on the basis of caste, which was a standard practice because at this time, the entry into intellectual spaces was even more difficult and there were overt sort of barriers that no one likes to talk about now. It's more uh, uh, visceral, but but it's not as obvious. But it was obvious at that time. And still the British state went ahead and said that to discriminate would be, to, would be illegal. So we see examples from um, uh, the British doing this. We also have the Bombay presidency examples where in 1858 they opened... Uh, so all the schools that were maintained by the government were to be open to all groups, all castes and subcastes. Then we also have, moving closer to the independence time, we also see some form of this debate coming from the discussion around the Puna Pact, the communal award. 
So we see that in terms of electoral reservations, there was a recognition that various communities, including on the basis of religion as well as subcaste within Hindus as well, uh, were to be granted some kind of special status. Although it didn't go through, we all know what happened, uh, the, the interactions that took place between Mahatma Gandhi and Dr. Uh, Bhimrao Medkar, and finally him um, sort of accepting what Gandhi had to say about that and the formation of the Pune Pact. But we do see that around this time, debates acknowledging that there is need for said reservation uh, e- only e- even if it was only to do with electoral reservations and not reservations in um, entry to public institutions of education or job opportunities, th- it did still exist. So post-independence, I think the uh, contribution uh, that po- political parties would have provided is more along the lines of actually stopping this kind of acknowledgement that has already happened. So for, I would I would lay the blame squarely on the kind of politics the kind of upper class, uh, upper class rhetoric that all parties, including the Indian National Congress at the time, were uh, privy to using that that actually were acted as a force of inertia upon any kind of social change requiring for reservation to be created as as a matter of policy, rather than benefiting it or bringing it to the fore or or um, taking some positive legislative action on it. This is quite fascinating. Are there- are there one or two examples you could share of reservation policies that predate uh, independence uh, that also have the same uh, reasons of addressing deep-seated casteism? I think to some degree, uh, the reasons were the same. But like we spoke about the communal award, the reasons for such a thing might be a little hard to tell from simply how the policy is constructed. Because although the policy in a lot of cases might uh, look progressive and is progressive in its function, it might not have been so progressive in its intention. So, for example, while the communal award does great for rep- in terms of representation, it also allows society to be stratified further, as, at least in the way that the British implied that rhetoric, because you can trace the communal award as the beginning of this kind of over tactics of maneuvering Indian society into various stratified groups and then laying a stronger claim over the um, governance of the country. But it is clear that there was some recognition in that not everyone within the Raj obviously had the same views about caste. Caste was an element that the British constantly weaponized, constantly used. And in fact, uh, if if you look at, say, the British architecture of the time, you will notice that although British architecture or Western architecture in the West might not have separate bathrooms or might not have a structure built in a way where there is no actual utilities available to a particular class of people. There is that at least the minimum, uh, the bottom line is that every building has that. When they started bringing that same architecture to India, that was suddenly not present. The British were more than happy to use caste, to be able to maneuver caste wherever it was possible. To, but So I don't want to necessarily characterize the British Raj as uh, more benevolent than an independent, in, independent Indian state. It wasn't. But there was some recognition and that recognition actually... Uh, the credit for that recognition goes to the thinkers, the indigenous uh, sort of caste activists, the, the very early forms of caste discourse. For example, establishments made by uh, Jyoti Rao Phule, Sabitri Bai Phule, their work, I think, was the primary driver of this kind of acknowledgement by the state. And it has continued to remain so. 
Yes, yes. And, and just as a follow-up, what is concealed when reservation is framed, as it often is, as the actions of a benevolent state and not a fundamental right, uh, as uh, asserted in the Supreme Court judgment we are discussing? The, um, when something is a fundamental right, which is part, uh, which is part three of the Indian Constitution, then uh, a party can go to the court and say that the state is doing something to uh, to stop me from the exercise of my fundamental right. So some action of the state is stopping me from fulfilling my fundamental right. And that is then, um, it is incumbent on the court to protect fundamental rights. As against this, when something is an action of a benevolent state, it's upkar, it's a, it's a favor on, on a group or an individual. And uh, that is not to be protected by court. And state can today be benevolent and tomorrow be not benevolent. It's on the, uh, on the vagaries of the state. And state is not a, a category that, uh, that is continuous uh, without changes. So uh, you will have a BJP government running something. You will have a left government. You will have an uh, Indian uh, National Congress government. So state will be run by different people with different ideologies. And so if you keep it at the mercy of the state and at the benevolence of the state, then these rights will ever be recognized, not as a... Um, not as a mainstream right that needs to be recognized for people who have been historically wronged. There is also that problem that uh, when something is a historical wrong, where uh, a one strata of society has benefited precisely from the deprivation and oppression that the other strata of society uh, has faced over centuries, you are basically saying that this is uh, something, uh, this this social model that we are currently living on is based on historical wrong that that needs to now be righted. Yes. And uh, just uh, circling back to the specific uh, research on the EPW article, uh, I was curious about your uh, process. So what made you choose these two specific judgments, the 1962 uh, M.R. Balaji versus the state of Mysore and the 2020 uh, Mukesh Kumar versus state of Uttarakhand? So um, the reason why we chose these particular judgments, uh, because as you will find, there are a lot of other judgments that also have something substantial to speak about reservation that we didn't necessarily talk about. We chose uh, MR Balaji versus State of Mysore. That's the first case we refer to. It's a 1962 Supreme Court case. The reason we chose that judgment is to show how to make a, an argument along the lines of uh, judiciary suddenly taking an anti-reservation or a pro-merit stance is nothing particularly new. So we go back to 1962 and we see this uh, judiciary for the first time using the words an enabling provision. An enabling provision as opposed to a mandate of the state that it must uh, fulfill. So it is the first time we see this kind of dilution happening. And in our eyes at the time of writing this paper, we see its culmination in the Uttarakhand judgment, which is now more so, um, uh, what do you call it, concretized in the most recent Supreme Court judgment where it has explicitly stated that reservation no longer exists as a matter of right. So the reason we spoke about MR Balaji was to basically give an example of this phenomena having happened in the past. Uh, we do think that there is a lot of intellectual gap in terms of having comprehensive 
uh, research on seeing the evolution of jurisprudence about preservation, taking into account all the judgments. But that's a project we think we will get into um, in the future because the critical point we wanted to make in this uh, paper was specifically uh, talking about women's labor and how that has been affected. So I think we started out keeping that critical po- uh, point that we wanted to make in our minds and then looked at a judgment that showed us simply that the way in which the judiciary is approaching the reservation is nothing new, but speaks of a greater system. So for example, we looked at the number of uh, women judges who have been involved in these matters related to reservation or the number of upper caste judges, for example, that have ruled on reservation judgments and overwhelmingly it's upper caste Hindu men. So that is the kind of trend we were interested in seeing in this paper, but we certainly hope to see other judgments as well. Moreover, uh, in terms of uh, the research methodology, I think in the beginning, what we knew is that uh, this particular judgment, Mukesh Kumar versus State of Uttarakhand, was going to be a heavily talked about decision and uh, was going to be an important decision because it, for the first time, at least in uh, recent memory, the Supreme Court has said, had said something so explicit about the way in which the reservation policy was to work. We also wanted to sort of take into account the fact that In the past, when the judiciary has had conflicting views with the legislature on a particular policy that has to do with reservation, there are actually examples of the state going ahead and passing a law that basically undoes the work of the judiciary. And the fact that it hasn't done that in these particular examples also shows some some kind of acquiescence to this new form of thinking about reservation. See, this uh, particular judgment that we uh, we wanted to write about is of uh, paramount importance because this uh, state of Uttarakhand had requested collection of data, as is written in the article, right? That there is evidence that, uh, so when uh, the actually people who were against reservation had asked for data to be collected, that Dalits and Adivasis are inadequately represented in state employment. So if you want to give reservation, please show us data that reservation is needed, show us in numbers. Okay, so uh, court had ordered the data collection. Now when this case goes to court again in Supreme Court and Mukesh Kumar says that my employment will be affected by this, the uh, advocates that are uh, gone to court from the reservation side are saying to the court that this data that was ordered by the court itself has been collected and it proves the fact of underrepresentation. Now, after this, the Supreme Court says that this is crucial. It says that data was not necessary if the state government decided to not enforce reservation. Data is only necessary or relevant for a state that wishes to enforce the policy of reservation. So this makes it very interesting and very, very difficult. We always say that law makes the uh, path of justice thorny for survivors of violence, etc. We say this in feminism a lot, criminal trials uh, for uh, rape survivors, sexual assault. And we see this again and again. But this is something that I am seeing starkly in a very civil matter, that a path towards gaining something for the lower strata is made so much thornier by the Supreme Court here by saying that the state needs data in when they when the state wants to be benevolent and state does not need data when the state decides not to be benevolent. So then benevolence, benevolent state gets no reward in this process by the Supreme Court, you see. Yes, yes. And, 
And as legal practitioners, what do you see as a relationship between judgments, state policy and public perception of reservations? I mean, it, it is difficult to homogenize public perception, but I'm interested in how legal and policy matters affect public opinion. Uh, for example, even though the central government uh, declared its intent to implement the findings of the Mandal Commission, a public protest broke out against it by upper castes. So uh, there are two layers to this. Uh, the first layer is obviously this acknowledgement that there is a confluence between judgment, state policies and public perception in that they can drive each other. If there's overwhelming public perception that A is something that we must celebrate as a society and it must get, um, you know, uh, embedded into the letter of the law, then organically it is, there are examples of when that has turned into judgments, if not turned into um, legislation that has then been interpreted or evolved further by judiciary. But the second layer to this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, in that the public perception aspect of this is the most important, I feel, because the public perception matters to the greatest degree, because any kind of motivation, at least for the legislature, comes directly from this construction of a particular particular kind of public perception. Now, one can see how this public perception has evolved over time. But like I said, to see it as a monolith would be a huge mistake because public perception actually doesn't take all the voices for reservation and anti-reservation at the same pedestal. It, in fact, chooses some voices and amplifies those. So the fact that the judiciary now has taken um, what can be broadly seen as an anti-reservation pro uh, this kind of false meritocratic approach that shows us that the confluence uh, from public perception, which might be argued to be, say, a majority of the population actually agreeing as being beneficiaries of reservation. So they're not necessarily speaking like against their own interests. We can see that that confluence hasn't translated in the same way as a simple statement saying that oh, there is a mutual confluence between all three of these elements. There's definitely an aspect of power that cannot be ignored. And definitely the judiciary and the legislature have more power to shape the public perception than vice versa. See, public perception is a very interesting thing, right? My work is uh, actually intersectionality of caste and gender with law. So uh, uh, it is interesting that you mentioned the Mandel Commission uh, protest in 1990s. And there, there was a uh, news item and one saw that uh, I was younger than this lot that was in colleges and standing there. Uh, so group of young women, college going, university going women would stand there with placards saying we do not want unemployed husbands. So upper caste women had decided, young women, they were not married. They had decided that their husbands are supposed to be from upper caste, that they are going to marry the men unknown as of now, but they are going to marry men from their own caste group and pay homage to the patriarchal caste system that already keeps them bound at home and lets them go to college, etc. with the proviso that they will be good women and not do any hanky-panky with anyone who's lower caste, Muslim, Christian, etc. So this gives us a very interesting picture of how reservation and uh, uh, public opinion works. So women have decided many things. One is that they will not marry the lower caste men who will, OBC men who will become IS officers and will get jobs. 
they will marry upper caste men and they want the husbands to be employed and they are not worried about their own employment or unemployment so they are worried about the husbands being unemployed right they don't don't say as women that we want employment we don't want to be unemployed later as educated women they are saying we do not want unemployed husbands i find it fascinating the way upper caste women's role is actually absolutely ignored in creation of and holding up the public discourses in caste politics feminists have tried but feminism is also fraught by uh, caste binaries and that keeps coming up when uh, every few years we have something that makes um, feminists also from both or three four different types of feminists to take positions which are more to do with their uh, caste religion kind of affiliation rather than being a feminist yes yes and and uh, could we talk more about the the reservation the women's reservation bills and the possibility of including uh, provisions to ensure just representation of uh, dalit tribal and bahujan women yeah now that is also very interesting right i spoke about the fault line between feminists so there is again this um, uh, mainstream feminists uh, in india have been asking for women's reservation and in a way men also so in media also you look at men uh, speaking about women's reservation as if it's a very liberal stance that they are taking but then when they uh, when uh, dalit women obc women ask for reservation within the women's reservation they say nahi nahi this is to taking it backwards so when we are asking for women's reservation just give women 33% reservation women mein koi caste system nahi hoti because all women are lower caste now that's a very problematic uh, view and uh, uh, because if you were to take 33% seats of any kind say political seats to administrative seats to educational seats if you're going to put that for women and then if you were not going to put the strata of caste within that then who will fill those so then you will have upper caste in the 66% and you would have a uh, entirely upper caste women filling 33% so you would have only upper caste so you would not have unless you have reservation within this reservation you would not be looking at this from a caste and gender angle and in india patriarchy and caste works together there is no caste without patriarchy and there is very little patriarchy to be managed without caste if i may i will give examples of this caste system will not actually work if anybody chose to marry anyone so you have to keep your women into bondage bondage which looks like uh, all of these very pretty concepts of familial uh, loyalty ma ka pyar pita ka pyar khandan ki shaurat uh, all of these kind of uh, you know words which actually can bind children very easily to to what is uh, basically a hazy uh, representation of caste system so you don't want them to fall in love with random people who do not fit into your caste clan so if you were to discuss only feminism if you were to discuss feminism only in terms of women then it will not actually work even as feminism because it will not take into account all women and if you were to take into account caste and then you were only talking about men then you will actually do away with 50% of population within those castes and that will also not work so in a way you have to take both both of this into account and both together is very hard to be represented in law so when you go to court it is very difficult to put all of this into a legal language for a petitioner to go and say this is a caste and gender operation so law uh, very uh, hardly takes into consideration overlapping operation or discrimination 
Right, right. And and how have provisions such as the creamy layer, um, you know, based on uh, income and profession and other factors, uh, and the economically weaker uh, reservation for uh, uh, savarnas affected the original purpose of reservations? You know, do these erosions support notions about quote unquote deserving and hardworking savarnas? The binary that is created is between, on the one hand, a meritocratic system where you ensure at the level of economics, at the level of material provision, that everyone has an equitable or as far as possible an equitable playing field. However, it doesn't do anything to uh, address social or educational backwardness in, in this particular vein of thinking, which is thinking along the lines of meritocracy, because we are not looking at people in terms of their aptitudes, sans anything that they might have been able to accomplish in their lives through access, we are doing that while not accounting for how different people have different levels of access to these institutions that actually form the aptitude. On the one side, you have this meritocratic uh, stance, which is framed as just and equitable, in which often the imagery used is that of a poor, economically weak person from an upper caste background. Now, there is no denying that the state has either failed in providing uh, material uh, prosperity to these people in order to give them a chance at arriving at a place where they have a living, where they can earn a, a reputable living. But at the same time, it also sort of muddies the water as to what reservation was uh, specifically intended to correct. The fact of the matter is that access isn't determined by your econo economic status al alone or the material reality of where you come from. Access, especially in the Indian context, is heavily uh, linked to your caste status. So, for example, entry into a temple is denied on the basis of caste regardless of where you stand economically. Now, this goes uh, in the same manner for entry into jobs, promotion, promotions, and educational uh, institutions. Even when access is controlled for and guaranteed, the experiences that people have once access is guaranteed is vastly different. So then for us to simply assume that the outcome will be similar just because there was access granted, even that position is far-fetched and not equitable. And in the way we frame it currently, that isn't even what we're arguing for. We're simply arguing for access. Media channels will often, often refer to pride and helplessness. How, in fact, guaranteeing reservation to uh, the deprived caste is, is somehow uh, uh, an attack on their reputation, on their ability to work through, uh, ability to gain through work, through their own labor, this kind of old... A Protestant almost idea of having to work for God and like your own dignity and that if you aren't able to do that, you're somehow a failure. That kind of piety is now also part of the discourse. And the uh, uh, news channels will have you believe that in fact, it is within a community that holds its own pride's interest to argue against reservation because it's disrespectful to claim reservation as a policy, as a matter of right. But I find this, uh, uh, you know, this word deserving very funny. Uh, if you're talking about deserving Savarnas, then uh, who is undeserving? Where are the undeserving Savarnas? If you have a word deserving, then you also have a, a section of people who are undeserving. 
right so let us look at deserving and undeserving this i do within my family because i am surrounded by a savarna family so i say okay so where are the undeserving let's look at undeserving within this family where, what are the deserve, undeserving people doing so we look around the savarna family uh, the whole clan and all the undeserving people have got admissions to through paying donations or uh, to private schools in the past uh, 10 15 years in india the proliferation of uh, private educational institutions had reached its zenith and before that anyways privatization of uh, all the production has happened in the past 25 years or so and that makes it very easy to access the private spaces which were earlier not available to be bought for money so now education can be purchased for money and the undeserving of the savarnas are going there so they are not suffering the ones we are talking about are now the deserving let us now look at the lower caste the obc and the uh, bc caste in which again we will see we would have to make this distinction of undeserving and deserving deserving meaning now let us also define what deserving means in this kind of discourse deserving is the person who is getting enough marks to get admission right if i am able to paint if i am able to dance if i am able to laugh if i am able to you know do a lot of things if i am able to connect with people all of that does not make me deserving in this discourse deserving is whether i get marks right in class in school undeserving uh, lower caste are all rotting in hell those uh, the same hell that dr ambedkar spoke of he spoke of this as a hell uh, that is uh, basically um, keeping all the uh, untouchable population within its uh, ignorance the words he used were uh, no light no knowledge right uh, no education so all of that he called hell so the undeserving ones are going to rot there and we are only going to speak about the deserving ones so that means there are there is competition between the deserving savarnas and the deserving lorkas so then reservation is only going to make a little bit favor to the deserving untouchables or hitherto untouchables so bc or obc caste so what the whole process premise reservation is doing is only to touch a very small section of the castes that have been kept down down trodden to touch very little of that like the percentage of deserving amongst them by this discourse is very little so we are talking about say 10% here and 10% there then the reservation the pro reservation lobby is all it's saying is give them a chance the only the deserving 10% so it's not really doing much if you ask me reservation is not doing much and that's why politics is more important if politically you were to gain power and then you might not need actually reservation of seats then you do much more in terms of political change but in when we are talking about reservation then both sides which are in competition with each other are both deserving and there is competition only between the deserving but then the deserving savarna gets 80% the deserving a savarna gets 60% or 70% and that's the competition so um, i think we also need to look at the framing of this debate in terms of outcomes so a lot of the times people will talk about how if reserved category uh, candidates are allowed inside these educational institutions or these professional spaces just because they haven't met the qualification that other candidates are subject to the quality of labor they produce will be lower this argument has been around since the time of the mandal commission and bp mandal actually speaks and refers to this uh, particular kind of idea and i think his response to it clarifies this position and and tells you how this is mostly if not completely an obfuscation 
because he talks about this idea of a first representation in itself having an inherent value so when you look at uh, recent recent research like uh, rikhil r bhavani's uh, research on electoral quotas etc he basically um, finds in his research that even after electoral quotas were withdrawn the representation of women in constituencies where uh, they were elected significantly increased and continued to stay at the level at which uh, it existed when the reservation quota was in place that tells you that there is something specifically and uniquely beneficial that people saw in this candidature that was now carried forward by women that wasn't uh, there before that they actively chose for in similar manner when bp mandal talks about this he gives the example of how important it is for government workers those holding power those holding the keys to change so to speak to be aware of the kind of social reality that a majority of the country actually lives through because if public policy is anything it is taking into consideration a social reality and then only after acknowledging it and understanding it prescribing a mode of conduct that resolves the wrong that wrongs that exist therefore to have people who have this unique understanding of the kind of problems faced by particular communities means that to uh, for for their upliftment to come about will also be easier when there are people who active actively understand their problems are in positions of power secondly his response comes along the lines of this when you look at people talking about um, non deserving candidates so to speak entering iits and uh, entering medical schools and creating this kind of moral panic that if we were to have these professionals who are not proficient uh, in in their uh, various professions because of how easily they easily uh, being a relative term uh, they managed to enter these institutions then wouldn't the standard of work generated by these sectors decrease the idea is that we forget that most of these educational institutions only have easier access at the level of entry but the exit process remains the same you give the same examinations you give the same qualifying sort of you clear the same qualifying qualifying criteria and only then do you become a professional therefore the question that somehow the labor would depreciate in quality is absurd because most of these professions already have a standardized exit forum where this is already controlled for right right and and how should we understand the informalization of labor and particularly its link to reservation and the impact on women from oppressed castes privatization has led to uh, optimization of uh, uh, resources use of resources by the upper caste upper class people so someone who is undeserving sabarna can now be uh, easily taken uh, easily use uh, the private sector rather than the public sector especially for education so in most universities of private nature there is no reservation right so that uh, makes it again a, a pie that is uh, shrinking while reservation uh, debate is raging so much that is one secondly uh, i think abhinav spoke about the data that in any kind of uh, category that we looked at we looked at teachers we looked at teachers in uh, different kind of categories of uh, teaching uh, positions and we realized that the 
single category of a social group that is least represented is the lower caste women because of the overlapping nature of caste and gender discrimination so women are trying to get into formal sector and the formal sector is dismantling so these are basically processes going against each other women were anyways part of the informal sector more so there is material uh, and data showing that actually even where you see that women are doing better it is women who are in the upper strata this is world over okay so my grandmother was not working outside of home nor was maybe uh, outside of home actually it's wrong because um, the grandmothers uh, of dalit caste were always working outside of home but if we are looking at the changes in three generation in women's employment an upper caste woman now is actually a part of an organized workforce and could be a doctor engineer and any other professional that men of her family are part of a woman of a dalit family may not have had the same chance of change in her professional uh, pro- professional career so if her grandmother was um, a mehtar and she was cleaning toilets as our article also shows and data shows that manual scavenging still works in 2020 in india so women in their 30s and 40s now still may be stuck manually picking up shit human shit so that is what one is talking about when one is looking at labor of women and reservation should have impact on this but it has not reached where it should where we can say reservation is now uh, no more a necessity it has reached the lowest person which is the dalit woman or not within uh, not just the dalit woman within dalit caste the lowest caste of the dalit uh, subcaste and women thereof if it has reached them and they are able to have access and have a even playing field then reservation is not necessary if that is not happened so far then to speak about deserving non deserving all of this actually makes no sense yes yes and one of the reason for reasons for inequities uh, that you mention uh, is the deep seated belief in the quote caste ordained labor structure which makes intellectual labor and entitlement of the upper caste and manual labor an obligation of lower castes and that you know intellectual labor alone allows entry into the middle class the only class that earns its livelihood through educational qualifications end quote can you expand on these uh, excerpts from the article and dwell more on the potential role uh, that maybe constitutional morality can play uh, in addressing not just representational uh, inequities in higher education but also caste and gender based discrimination and violence you know both physical and and psychological so say uh, if i am a brahmin woman now and my grandfather was a teacher then i uh, but my grandmother wasn't because at that time it was only the men of my family or clan were who were working in intellectual labor but it is assumed that my community works in intellectual labor so when women start getting education and those boundaries of gender are slowly obliterated only i'm not saying it they are obliterated they are slowly hazy in education and employment not in all other power structures within the family and outside even for brahmin women but if intellectual labor has become accessible to women then it is very easy for brahmin women to be professors now so the third generation of a brahmin teacher in the village in satara somewhere would be a, a female professor in jindal university it's very possible but intellectual labor of someone who might be my uh, my contemporary 
who's a dalit woman whose grandfather never worked in intellectual labor her father never worked in intellectual labor that is intellectual labor itself is a closed door uh, kind of a profession and so the entry is difficult for these people and there are all these uh, uh, deep seated understanding of uh, who would do what kind of labor if i am a person who is uh, born and brought up in india and even though i think i don't believe in caste i believe in all the all the things that uh, quote unquote culture indian culture actually tells me then i would have a definite opinion on who would teach my student uh, teach my child who should do the domestic labor in my house who should be the teacher of my children who should be the nanny who should be the cook and who should be the bhangi kaam person who should wash the toilets so who will do the rasoi ka kaam the uh, bathroom ka kaam the uh, school work kaam i will have a hierarchy of uh, or categorization of labor which i think is cultural but is actually caste ordained so that means that intellectual labor is that much more inaccessible to people and therein women within the lowest caste yes and and the last question i'd like to leave you with is what are some of the unanswered questions that you continue to investigate in your future work yeah just to um, sort of go back to the gap i was referring to that we found out when we were researching this article about having this sort of comprehensive analysis on the evolution of reservation jurisprudence more broadly affirmative action and see how um the confluence of political interests of developing intellectual positions on a multiplicity of these issues has in fact affected a uh, social reality so uh that gap that we felt existed uh we thought we could try and um sort of work towards having this kind of analysis available for future researchers to at least have an understanding of how we find ourselves in this point in time where the supreme court has gone ahead and explicitly said that a uh, reservation is not a matter of right anymore uh, which which would seem as a huge leap from the position that we started with uh, even before mandal in fact the kind of reservation uh, imagined in those days specifically addressing social and educational uh backwardness to this time where we have a specific reservation carved out especially for the economically weak section of the society so we we want to sort of see this as 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 a kind of journey maybe not linear all the times as we've seen that aspects of this way of thinking about reservation have always pervaded decisions from the supreme court high court etc but uh have like a better understanding of uh how it has morphed into what it is uh that we see now yes yes thank you so much for joining us samina and abhinav we covered a lot of ground today on a complex topic thank you for having us thank you abhishek this is the last episode of the season and i would like to thank you for tuning in i recommend listening to our previous episodes if you haven't already and do reach out to us with your thoughts about the season via any of epw social media accounts or email us at social@epw.in at Take care and we'll be back very soon with a new season.